Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 33. Last week, I continued working my way through the Egyptian New Kingdom, spending the entire episode on Pharaoh Thutmose III. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. For the past several episodes, well probably really longer than that, I've been referring to the Exodus as having occurred sometime around 1450 BC. But to be clear, that date isn't set in stone, nor inscribed on a pyramid. And there are about as many proposed dates as there are researchers. So in this episode, at least starting in this episode, I'll cover several theories around the dating of the event. And before I get started, a somewhat usual disclaimer. None of these are my dates. I'm merely the messenger. You, of course, can decide for yourself. And with that, let's get started. Scholars, mostly biblical, but also historians and archaeologists, have been arguing over the date of the Exodus almost since it occurred. And, as you would probably suspect, one of the arguments is that it never really occurred, at least in a way that is even remotely similar to what is found in the second book of the Old Testament. I'll cover that one first, and it's based simply on the failure of such an event to be mentioned in Egyptian records. But like the old adage, the absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence. Genesis chapter 47 mentions that Jacob's family settled in the land of Ramses, which is modernly known as Tel Adaba and is located in the northeastern Nile Delta. Prior to being named Ramses, the site was called Avaris, and it was the capital of the Hyksos kingdom. Pharaoh Ramses II would build his capital within a stone's throw. Not to confuse the issue too much, but scholars are not in agreement that the city of Avaris turned Ramses is one and the same as the city by the same name in Exodus. Avaris could also be the city of Pithom, but the location of this city has been lost to the ravages of both time and the desert sands, or maybe the flooding of the Nile. And the location of the city is not the focus of this episode. The area around Avaris has been essentially continually excavated since about 1885, and the excavations have uncovered nothing that relates to the ancient Israelites. But the conclusion that they did not live there would be misleading, why? Well, in all of the excavations, only one historical document from any period has been found. And it is a small, meaning 4 inches square, or 25 centimeters square, fragment of a clay tablet that seems to be a small part of a letter from the king of the Hittite Empire to Ramses II, so dating to between about 1290 and 1224 BC. This letter concerns the terms of a peace treaty between the two parties. Now to be clear, the city contains many Hyksos-related artifacts, but these are mostly pottery and grave sites, along with the remnants of buildings, but no documents. It's also important to note, and I know I mentioned this towards the beginning of this chapter of the podcast, so over six months ago. Anyway, surviving Egyptian inscriptions quite usually only present the highlights of a pharaoh's reign, a sort of propaganda. Most events that would show the pharaoh in a negative light are ignored. And in many cases, this makes sense. 
Keep in mind that most of these inscriptions are found in the Pharaoh's tomb, and this tomb was to prepare the deceased for the afterlife, where Osiris would judge them based on their worldly deeds. No need to aid Osiris in determining the negative, so only the positive was presented. Now it's been proposed that the Egyptian belief in reliance on these inscriptions was so strong that if something was not recorded, to them it really didn't happen. Proponents of this no exodus theory also point out that the Pharaoh named in both Genesis and Exodus, well, they aren't named, they are unnamed. The Pharaoh associated with Joseph, the other one that enslaved the Israelites, and the final one who had to be convinced to let the Israelites go. They are all simply referred to by their title. Why would Moses, who is believed to be the author of the first two books of the Bible, well, really several more, why would he have presented it this way? British Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen from the University of Liverpool argues that the singular word Pharaoh was how Egyptians themselves referred to their leader when the Exodus probably occurred. It was not until about 400 years later that the title preceded an actual name, like Pharaoh Hophra and Pharaoh Necho. In fact, later in the Old Testament, in the books of Jeremiah, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles, we see the actual name of the Egyptian leader used, and in these cases their names are usually preceded by the title Pharaoh. So, at least on its surface, not using the given name of the Egyptian leader undermines the biblical narrative, but when you dig deeper, it actually lends credibility. A second argument against the legitimacy of the Exodus story relies on undermining the conquest found in the books of Joshua through archaeological and historical evidence. It's a rather complicated argument, but in general, it relies on the city of Jericho being abandoned then resettled as an unwalled city sometime around the year 1200 BC. If true, this would mean the Israelites did not conquer it. If they did not conquer it, then there was probably no exodus. At least that's the theory. Now, there is evidence that sometime around 1500 BC, the city was attacked by Egyptians, an attack that led to the destruction of the city along with its walls and this attack is believed to have been the work of Egyptians. But then again, the people in the city of Jericho called them Egyptians, and it could have been the Hyksos, who were residing, at least recently residing, in the Egyptian Nile Delta. You can try to force-fit this into the biblical story, and if they are all true, then the Exodus would have had to occur 40 years earlier, so about 1540 BC followed by 40 years of wandering. So, about a century before the 1450 BC date I've been quoting. Adding to the confusion is that radiocarbon dating marks the destruction even earlier, in either the 16th or 17th centuries BC. Maybe, but also maybe not the Hyksos, and or the Israelites, and or the Egyptians. The date I've been quoting, around 1450 BC, is based on a passage in 1 Kings, chapter 6, which reads, In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord, end quote. And by house of the Lord, it's referring to the temple, 
in this case, the building that would be known as Solomon's Temple, or sometimes the First Temple. And this is thought to have occurred in the mid-10th century BC. Solomon is believed, at least traditionally, to have taken the throne in 970 BC, and four years later would be, of course, 966 BC. Add 480 years to 966 and you get 1446 BC, which is a really exact date. Except it really isn't. The 480 year figure is believed by some to be a calculation. The product of 12 generations at 40 years each. And 40 years between generations is a really long time, even by today's standards. So the 480 years might have been more of a rhetorical device instead of an actual count of specific years. There's more to the theory, and if you'll bear with me a minute, I'll do my best to cover it without making it terribly confusing. First, there is the belief among some that the destruction of Jericho, A.E., and Hazor happened sometime around 1400 BC, which would tend to support a 1446 exodus followed by 40 years of wandering. Of course, as I covered a few minutes ago, not everyone agrees that Jericho fell at this time. But then again, is there anything that everyone agrees on? Proponents of the theory claim that evidence demonstrates that Jericho was destroyed by fire, a fire that took place after the harvest. Also, the city's walls fell after a short siege, and then the city was not plundered. The Canaanite cities of Ai and Hazor are also held up to support the narrative. Their destruction can be found in the book of Joshua. And some believe that the archaeological evidence points to a downfall around the time that the Israelites were arriving back in Canaan. And that's the easy part of the theory to accept. The rest is a bit more involved. Psalms 136 is thought to suggest that the Pharaoh perished with his army in the Red Sea, or perhaps in the Sea of Reeds. But to be clear, Psalms does not explicitly say that the Pharaoh died. And, to make that belief work, take some careful maneuvering. The proponents of the dead Pharaoh theory point out that they can't name a Pharaoh who died in 1446 BC. So they then go to different numbering systems, which I've touched on in the past, which allow the dates to vary by about 25 years or so. But some take a completely different tack. William Shea, a U.S. archaeologist, who also happens to be a medical doctor, not that it matters in this case. Anyway, he proposes that the pharaoh did die around 1446, and his death was covered up by Egyptian officials. These officials would not allow for the god king to die while pursuing lowly runaway slaves. And they're not recording the event, it would be as if it never happened. That certainly sounds familiar. Shea wrote that Amenhotep II was the pharaoh of the Exodus. Remember, he was Thutmose's successor, and Thutmose was the subject of the last episode. Four years after taking the throne solely, according to Shea's theory, he perished in the Red Sea in 1446 BC. Outside of his theory, it's believed that Amenhotep served for 26 years. I'll cover his proposed reign in the next episode. Shea continued that Amenhotep was replaced with another king who was also given the same name and the entire incident was hushed up, which, in the age before photographs and social media, 
when the king was rarely seen. The theory isn't beyond plausible, but it is certainly a stretch. Shea claims to have uncovered scribal writings that may be clues as to what happened, and these writings, which may be true or may be errors, can be interpreted as showing two different Amenhoteps, one who reigned from 1450 to 1446 and the other from 1446 to 1425. And adding to the confusion is that the first one, who may have ruled the entire period or for only four years, well, he had a son named Amenhotep. While the whole thing, at least based on the artifacts uncovered so far, is not impossible, but probably not very likely. Egyptian inscriptions boast of Amenhotep's physical prowess, with martial skill not nearly matched by anyone in the Egyptian army. Many of the feats attributed to him boggle the mind, and I'll cover some of those in the next episode. For somewhat not-so-modern parallel, think of the sword in the stone, or even very recently, the superhuman feats attributed to a certain dictator from North Korea, Kim Jong-il, and his ability to make five holes in one in a single round of golf, the first time he played. Now to be clear, the ancient Egyptians did not have golf, or even frisbee golf, but their dear leader, at least Amenhotep, boasted of similar feats, on a chariot, on foot. Surprisingly though, they didn't claim he could fly. Anyway, the proponents of the theory that he drowned in the Sea of Reeds and was quietly replaced, point to the similarities of his feats in the passage in Exodus 5, where the unnamed Pharaoh, after Moses and Aaron relay God's message to free the Israelites, the Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord, that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. To me, it seems like a bit of a stretch to compare this statement to various feats of strength. Proponents of the theory also cite that post-1446 BC, the leader, whichever Amenhotep it may have been, appeared to have been humbled, as inscriptions recorded after this date seem to be more factually centric. Finally, the proponents of the Amenhotep died in the reeds theory point to the abandonment of Avaris as evidence, claiming that it was made a ghost town as the result of the many plagues brought by God on Egypt. Historians, they claim, are unclear why the place was deserted. But these historians propose it may have been due to a peaceful foreign policy, making this militarily important site in the Nile Delta unnecessary. Of course, like I've covered many times, so far, no substantive documents supporting either theory have been uncovered at the site. A couple of years after the 1446 BC potential date of the Exodus, Egypt set about on a huge military campaign in Canaan. It's thought that the primary objective of these expeditions was to replenish lost wealth, capture new slaves, and seize military personnel and assets. And proponents of the two Amenhotep's theory claim that this raiding and pillaging expedition was geared towards rebuilding the wealth Egypt had lost with the departure of the Israelites. Recall that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 36, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians of their gold, silver, and clothing. The military campaign a few years later was so that the Egyptians could regather some of their lost wealth. 
albeit from different sources. But you don't have to believe that there were two pharaohs by the same name to buy into the military campaign to recover lost wealth. This campaign was to Syria, similar to the route followed by Amenhotep's father Thutmose III, and the spoils of victory were apparently much more than any previous campaign, returning Egypt to its pre-Exodus stature. I know I said finally one prior time, but there's another piece of archaeology that is commonly used in reference to the historical context of the Exodus, and that's the defacing of monuments of Hatshepsut, the princess-turned-regent-turned-pharaoh, who was essentially the predecessor to Thutmose III. In the previous episode, I touched on this, and as you would expect, the common explanation is that Thutmose III was trying to legitimize his own rule. Counter to this is that some researchers believe that the removal did not begin until after she had been out of power for about 20 years. Some even believe that the removal of her name wasn't until Thutmose was dead and Amenhotep was in power. It's been proposed that the motivation for desecrating her name was that she was the princess who adopted the infant Moses when he was found in a basket among the reeds, and Amenhotep was so upset at Moses that he lashed out at the memory of Moses' adopted mother. Keep in mind that if true, Moses would have been essentially Thutmose's adopted brother and Amenhotep's uncle, a great family feud. Anyway, you can see that there is much to this theory of the mid-15th century BC exodus. Some supported by biblical text and other bits attempting to fit what is known about Egyptian history to the biblical narrative. But to be clear, there is no direct evidence of most of this. There are no Egyptian records about two Amenhoteps, nothing about the Israelites plundering the Egyptians, or about Moses being adopted by Hatshepsut. But, you also have to remember what I said in the beginning of this episode. Absence of evidence is not the same as evidence of absence. There's another dating theory worth covering, and that is that the Exodus occurred in the 13th century BC, so roughly 200 years after the 1446 date. This theory relies on two specific events. First, there is the mention of the city of Ramses in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus reads, Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. End quote. But the city of Ramses wasn't built until after the 15th century BC. As the Pharaoh Ramses wasn't even born yet, Ramses the Great, one and the same as Ramses II, ruled from 1279 to 1213 BC. He had his capital built in the delta, very close to the site of the former Hyksos capital of Avaris. But before getting too in-depth into this theory, there's a big problem, and that's the timing of everything. Exodus tells of how the Hebrew slaves were involved in the construction of a city. And if you work under the assumption that this was the same city where Ramses II built his capital, then assume the work started early in his reign. I'll pick the date of 1279, his first year. You have to also assume that the 12 generations were 25 years apiece, and with the building of Solomon's temple in 970, 
means that the exodus would have to occur in 1270, just nine years after the construction of the city of Ramses began. And there would have to have been a great deal of work in these nine years. So what are we assuming happened in those nine years? Well, of course the cities of Pithom and Ramses would have to be built, and the Hebrew population would have to experience great growth, to the point that the Egyptians dreaded their presence. In my mind, the implication is that this would take generations. After they multiplied, or maybe while their numbers were still growing, the Egyptians ramped up the oppression. The king then commanded that male Hebrew babies be executed, but at first the midwives ignored the order, and the people multiplied more. Moses was then born, was adopted into the royal household, reached adulthood, and fled persecution, presumably around the age of 40. He doesn't return to Egypt until those seeking to punish him are dead. It's generally thought that he returned when he was around 80 years old, as Exodus chapter 7 tells us his age when he spoke to the Pharaoh. So, this is a lot that would have to happen in the nine years between Ramses taking the throne and the Exodus. It just doesn't add up. In my mind, it was written as the city of Ramses, because this was the name of the city at the time of the writing of the book. But this theory, too, isn't without issues. If Exodus was written by Moses, and the Exodus occurred around 1450, then Moses wouldn't have known what the city was going to be called 200 years into the future. Unless, of course, God gave him a heads up. The name was probably changed to Ramses in the later editing of the book. Further undermining the 13th century exodus is that there are Egyptian artifacts that place the Israelites in Israel during the reign of Ramses' son, Merentah. And this would mean that the exodus had to occur at least 40 years prior to these inscriptions. So, if they did build a city named Ramses, but were in Israel during his son's reign, then the exodus had to occur during Ramses number two's reign. Also adding to this is that Hollywood tends to portray the pharaoh during the exodus as Ramses. This was the case in Cecil DeMille's 1956 cinematic wonder, where Yul Brynner portrays Ramses himself. But this theory of a mid-13th century BC exodus is problematic, too. Obviously, it wasn't over 400 years prior to the building of Solomon's temple, as stated in 1 Kings. Proponents of the theory explain that 1 Kings is not to be taken literally. Instead, it's to be read as more figurative, and 40 years between generations is a romanticized number. They would use 25 years instead. Therefore, 12 generations, averaging 25 years each, yields 300 years. Take Solomon's fourth year of 967, add 300 years, and you end up with the year 1267. 12 years into Ramsey's reign. But the theory does not account for one sticky item, and that's the Hebrew calendar. At the time of the Exodus, the Hebrew people were doing a good job of tracking their years, which shouldn't surprise anyone. After all, they had just been living in Egypt, and the Egyptians set the standard for calendars, even aligning their buildings to the location of the sun on specific days of the year. So, 
To think a sacred text would miss a date by several hundred years is pushing it. But not only that, in Matthew chapter 1, we were told of about 11 generations between Solomon and Judah, the brother of Joseph. We also know that the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years, as stated in Exodus chapter 12, and Solomon's temple was built either 300 or 480 years later. Take the low number of 300 and you see 730 years and 11 generations, so 66 years between generations, give or take. So, I really would shy away from using a generation count and lead towards the count of years. But before you completely discard the generations, keep one thing in mind. There are confirmed cases of widely dispersed generations. After all, John Tyler, the 10th president of the U.S. who served from 1841 to 1845 and was born in 1790, has two living grandsons, no great prefixes necessary. These two men's father was Tyler's son, one generation between, so not outside the realm of possibility, but still hard to fathom. First Chronicles in chapter 6 goes through a similar genealogy, but this time for Heman the Ezerhite. With 19 generations from the era of Moses to Solomon, there are several other genealogies and calendar events that tend to not allow 300 years between the Exodus and the Temple. Also, Judges chapter 11 mentions that Jephthah tells the king of Ammon that Israel had been living in the land for 300 years prior to the beginning of the Ammonite oppression. Now, the exact date of the Ammonite oppression is not known, but is assumed to have been around 1100 BC which would also place the Exodus in the 15th century BC. But it's worth noting that Jephthah himself was the son of a prostitute and he became a judge of Israel. So his knowledge of history has been called into question by some. And that's where I'll end this episode. When I first started, I thought I could cover the topic in a single week. But like so many times, there's just too much to cram into less than 30 minutes. So, I'll make a good faith effort to wrap up the dating of the Exodus in the next episode. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. That helps others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.